You're listening to the NAWCC Podcast. I'm Anna Tran. Today, I'm talking with Mark Frank. He called in from Chicago, and he's a guy with many interests and skills. MBA in finance, BA in economics, mechanical engineering degree. Mark worked in commercial banking and eventually went into real estate. Oh, and also, he grows exotic flowers. Orchids for outdoors. Uh, there's uh, exotic peonies. But in today's episode you'll hear about Mark's horological investments, specifically the 12 years of commitment to seeing his commission of his astroskeleton clock to completion. I talk with him about the ups and downs of his 12-year project, the good fortune of seeing one's imagination come to life, and the special friendships that come from faithful collaboration. We hear from Mark himself about the efforts he and his good friend Buchanan took to complete this one-of-a-kind time machine. Stay with us. Mark's retired now, and although his interest in horology developed in his young adult years, what's true is that since he was a boy, Mark has always been a gearhead. Well, I've been, since I can remember as a child, always interested in mechanical things. So if I got a wind-up car as as a kid or anything like that, first thing I'd do is uh, bend open the tabs on the bottom of the car and open it up and see how, how it worked. And then uh, as I got a little older, I was into all of the construction sets, erector sets, and all of those sorts of things. And then as a teenager, I got into uh, hot rodding cars and rebuilding engines. So tell me about just some early memories that you have of watches and clocks, and also about learning about horology as well. Uh, The first clock that I ever got my hands on was a decrepit old grandfather clock that a neighbor of mine had had when I was around 10 years old. The base had been submerged in uh, probably in water from a flooded basement for many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she gave it to me and I rebuilt the bottom to what I thought at the time was appropriate, which of course now I know is <laughs> just a simple, silly little box that uh, I put in. And then I cleaned it and oiled it and I got it to work, uh, which was very rewarding. And, uh, and in fact, I still have it and it's still running. After that, there was a hiatus of many years as I went to school and to college and got my first job. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I bought a uh, couple of small skeleton clocks, little cheap one train skeleton clocks. And then as I got more interested, oh, probably my late 20s, early 30s in uh, horology, I sold off uh, some of the collection and gave the rest of it to the uh, Chicago public school system. And so it sounds like during your college years, learned about skeleton clocks. Was around the same time you also learned of tower clocks? Well, actually, uh, the tower clocks were technically the first thing that I truly started collecting Mm -hmm. uh, in horology. I was wandering through an architectural artifacts store one day, and there was a medium-sized French 
tower clock by uh, Henry Wagner that had partial remontoire in it. Part of it was missing. Mm. But I knew what I was looking at because I'd been to the Time Museum and Mm. I've seen a clock with that same mechanism in it. In fact, uh, when the museum closed and was put up for auction, I bought that piece and that is also in my collection. So my first real love in horology and collecting and in research was in tower clocks. And at the peak, I owned about 35 tower clocks that were all all in my basement. And as a lifelong gearhead with an interest in horology, it was in 2003 that began Mark's journey into bringing to life the clock of his dreams, a clock that he describes as a fevered imagination dream any gearhead could dream up with every conceivable type of horological artifact one might find. It was in the December 2003 issue of the NAWCC Bulletin when Mark saw on the front cover a great wheel skeleton clock. When I looked at it and I looked at the article, I thought, gee, I'd really like to have this. I want to buy this for my collection. But the maker, who uh, went by the pseudonym of Buchanan, did not have a email, didn't have a website, didn't have a phone number. And uh, there are reasons for this. He, he's a religious guy, belongs to a particular kind of sect that uh, does not allow for him to have his photograph taken, which is why you'll see, you won't see his face or his real name uh, associated with the project. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I uh, asked a friend of mine who was a little bit better traveled than I am, and we knew he was somewhere around London. So he tracked him down, found him. We got on a three-way phone call, and I said, look, uh, you know, I'd like to buy this clock from you. And he says, well, Mr. Frank, I'm happy to sell it to you, but at, um, what I really want to do is get started in bespoke, which, of course, is, is English for custom-made uh, clock making. And I said, well, that's very interesting. I will do that. I will help you buy the tooling and so forth. And I will design a clock to my specifications that you can build. When I saw what he could do, I then decided that the design I was thinking of was not ambitious enough. And so I began adding things over the three-year period that it took to begin this project which is probably much to the chagrin of Buchanan because what turned out to be a three to four year project uh, evolved into a 12 year project. A three year project evolving into 12 years may sound aimless, like there was no plan at all. But when I asked Mark about the design process, he was clear and specific about the clock's goals and parameters. One was what I would call size. That is, it had to be larger than a regular skeleton clock, but not too large so as to not fit in a a residential home. So the clock's base is about 24 inches wide, and overall it occupies a square of about 30 inches high, 30 inches wide, and about 18 inches deep. The next rule was that I wanted it to be extraordinarily complex. And the third was in movement. In other words, it's designed to be fascinating. It's designed so that you walk into the room, it grabs your attention, and it doesn't let go. I went through dozens and dozens of hand drawings 
At first, I was very much influenced by tower clock designs. I began to see that that was never going to look, shall we say, um, aesthetically pleasing. A tower clock is basically a, a machine that's you know meant to drive dials, not meant to be in a house. So it just was really a trial and error, placing dials in certain areas, first determining, of course, what do I want this machine to do? I want it to tell time, I want it to give me sidereal time, the equation of time, uh, a planisphere, a sun rising and setting, a moon rising and setting, all of those different dial readouts that I wanted, and then work backwards from there. The other thing that I wanted to do that's different from what some other makers do is I wanted to minimize the number of dials that were there while maximizing the number of complications. Oftentimes, makers will say, will, will take a clock and they'll have it adorned with a zillion dials just to scream at you uh, to say, hey, look at me, look at how many complications I have. And to me, that looks like the cockpit of a prior generation jetliner. I didn't want that. I wanted the machine's beauty to come to the fore and the dials to only be there as a helpmate, not as the main focus of attention. So it was really a trial and error thing for a long time until I finally got what I thought was a, a beautiful design. So there are fly fans always moving, some little parts on the inside moving. We have allegorical birds that are made for the escapement and the detents. Uh, it is liberally jeweled with uh, artificial ruby jewels. The screws are all blued in an electric blue color. All of the bezels are gold plated in 24 karat gold. So everything about it is an eye candy thing to attract your attention. Buchanan has told me that over the years that he's been building this, when visitors come by, the amount of time between they first lay eyes on the machine and the time the first words escape their lips gets longer and longer and longer. <laughs> and that is exactly what I wanted to achieve. To give you an idea how complex Mark's clock is, ironically, there's a horological term called complication. A complication is used to describe a single function. Essentially, it's one thing that the clock does. So if your clock can tell the equation of time, which is the difference between where the sun is at noon and what your clock says noon is, mm -hmm. and that changes day to day, because of the tilt of the Earth and the orbit of the Earth. That's a complication. Other common complications include things like telling you the date, the time zone, even the phase of the moon. Mine does 71 different things. Wow. And if you go to the, uh, the bulletin, it's list. there's a list of it there. Right. So you can actually see you know, what they all are. Yeah. I'm curious. Do you have those 71 complications memorized at this point? <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> That's why I, I was going to say, if you asked me right. for what they were, I just happened to have the bulletin open on my yeah. desk here. <laughs> but, but no, I don't have them memorized. No, no. Mm. And some are very esoteric. Some we did simply because we could. Mm-hmm. We just kind of fit them in. Uh, for example, one thing this does that I don't think any other clock does is uh, you can predict uh, uh, in the future or observe in the past to confirm where and when a solar or lunar eclipse has occurred on the face of the Earth. Wow, so both past and future. Both past and future. Because this clock contains what's called a third-order perpetual calendar. If a clock has a perpetual calendar, that generally means that it accounts for the leap year. You know, every four years, you add a day in February and and you keep it in step. Mm -hmm. But that's really not good enough to keep it perpetual forever. So every 100 years, there is an exception to that rule. Mm -hmm. And even then, you won't keep perfectly in time with the seasons. So then every 400 years... There is another exception to the 100-year exception to the rule. And all that requires uh, a level uh, and layers of mechanical cams and gears and complications in order to achieve that. It's basically a small analog computer. Yeah. And using that, you can go backwards or forwards with perfect accuracy and then use certain things on the Tellarium to be able to to accomplish that particular, uh, what we would call a complication, which is the prediction of the solar or the lunar eclipse. Wow. Did you set out to build 71 complications into the piece, or did it slowly tick up more and more? It, it's the latter. It did tick up more and more. I would mm-hmm. say originally, and that's a very interesting question. I don't think I've been asked that question before. Um, I will have to go back, now that you've asked that question, really count up the number of complications I originally thought of. Mm. My guess is that it's about half. Now, 71 complications is a lot to keep track of. So I asked Mark, what problems did he run into? And how did he and Buchanan go about troubleshooting things that didn't go according to plan? To be honest, what was most surprising was given the complexity of the machine and the fact that a lot of it was really built on the fly. Since it was being built as we went along, Buchanan had much of this in his head and really very rarely did we paint ourselves into a corner Mm -hmm. and say, oh, you know, we have to destroy this work here and there and rebuild it. There were a few. There were there was one instance where we were pursuing the grasshopper escapements for the Harrison uh, uh, escapement wheels and it just simply didn't work. It was a bad design. Mm. Uh, so we lost about a month worth of work on that. We redesigned it. Mm-hmm. Toward the end, uh, we found that there was a mistake in the second's hand as it was attached to uh, certain parts, uh, a differential and so forth. And we had to make a correction for that. And we lost again, maybe two weeks on that. Mm -hmm. 
the largest things that happened that took time were not mistakes, but really redesigns. So we really didn't destroy anything. Like good authors do, Mark and Buchanan revised and adjusted their work, refining their designs, which helped the clock go from weighing more than 220 pounds to weighing about 150 pounds. As the commissioner of the clock, Mark was very closely involved with every single aspect of the design process. But Buchanan, he was the hands. All of the physical work, like machining parts, prototyping, assembly, and testing, that was all Buchanan. All I did was provide, of course, aside from the money, Mm -hmm. was a guiding hand of the overall design and the aesthetic Mm -hmm. that I wanted this to be. But this was 100% out of my fevered imagination. Mm. So that's really what I contributed to the project was really the original design of what do I want this to do? What do I want it to look like? Saying, well, maybe let's tweak it this way. Let's make uh, the escapements look like birds. Mm -hmm. Let's make the frame posts look like trees. And at the end of the trees, let's put uh, red chatons for red fruit. Inside the forest will be more birds, which will be the strikers for the bells and things like that. But he would take my suggestions and just simply make them outstanding and beautiful. The, the, wow. the man's talent is unsurpassed. Yeah. It sounds like just a playground of, you know, ideas and fun and just a lot of enjoyment. What was it like when what you had described to Buchanan, like you can actually see in real life? You know, I, I'd have to say it's, it was just the highlight of my of my day I, I mean every few days you turn on your computer or almost every day and there's something wonderful there yeah. some absolutely beautiful part that's being made that's polished that's gorgeous you know and so on so for me um other than the cost i i've never had so much fun spending so much money in my life <laughs> you, know? you know it's like if you had an idea for a car Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what, I want to build a five-wheeled car because I think it looks cool and I want it, you know, to be built. And I'm going to go to Ferrari mm-hmm. in Italy mm-hmm. and they're going to close down their plant and they're going to build this car for me to those standards. Mm-hmm. So I am a very blessed and lucky individual that I had the means and I had the opportunity and the luck to be able to build a dream Mm -hmm. without compromise. Mm -hmm. And there aren't many people who can say that, you know, there are some, you know, there are billionaires out there who can build a, you know, 50 room mansion to whatever they want. But for most people who are not at that level to have something in your life that's brought from your imagination Mm -hmm. and made real without compromise, Mm -hmm is truly a unique and rewarding experience. Isn't that what this is all about? Bringing life to imagination, making a dream into a reality, taking an intangible idea and with time and effort, 
getting to hold and touch your idea with your very own hands. And Buchanan helped to make that happen for Mark. Tell me about you and Buchanan's relationship, too. What was it like getting to know him? I'm sure after 12 years, you probably are good friends at this point. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, Buchanan has always approached me and treated me, uh, which I found a little awkward at first, but I do appreciate, uh, as carriage trade. It's always Mr. Frank. Mm. I will call him by his first name, but he's always Mr. Frank. Mm. He he does have a very uh, dry kind of wit. Mm-hmm. And unlike a lot of artists, and he is an artist, he's not mm-hmm. just a guy who's really, really good at uh, making things on a mill or a lathe. He is also an artist. He understands what good design is. Mm-hmm. and how to integrate that across hundreds and hundreds of parts mm-hmm. and what good horology looks like. Mm. If you, for example, take a design for a clock and you take it to a guy who builds motorcycles, mm. he's not going to do a good job mm-hmm. because he's not going to understand that clocks require a different tolerance level. He's not going to understand what it takes to make a beautiful clock. He'll know what it takes to make a beautiful engine Mm. or a nice-looking motorcycle, but he won't know how to do that. This man is steeped in the history of horology. He's studied it. He's looked at books. He's been to museums, as I have. Mm. And so he understands and knows how to do that sort of thing. Not only did Buchanan know how to marry design and knowledge of horology, but his attention to detail and commitment to the project speaks volumes to his work ethic and dedication. It's a testament to his tenacity and his keeping of his word that he would finish the project. Of course, not without revisions and cost, but but the fact that he and his family endured this 12-year saga is really quite uh, quite amazing, particularly because he's in Australia. Mm-hmm. So you can't be much further away and try to keep something like this together. We had no concept of what we were getting into uh, and just took a lot longer. The other reason is that Buchanan is a perfectionist. Mm. And so he does things until it's done right. Mm-hmm. And even though things costed a lot more than I had anticipated, he has always given me 110%. Yeah. There were times when I said, you know, maybe we'll let this thing go and we'll just do it this other way. And uh, he wouldn't hear of it. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's really the both of us. We attack a problem and it always comes out better mm-hmm. after we've talked. So we, we really made a, a terrific team. I just think that 12 years has completely wrung him and his family out. But, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, but for me, it was fun. Was there a moment during the designing process where you, you know, had a realization that the project would take much longer than you thought? Was there like a year, maybe like year three or year four? Yes, actually, there were several points Mm. in the project 
Do you remember what was going on at the in those moments? A, a lot of crying and grief. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, because look, to be fair, you know, when you start seeing that this commitment is becoming so huge, again, for me, it wasn't a problem. I had the money mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. But for Buchanan, you know, there were other people there. There was this, there was this family saying, hey, look, you know, how long are you going to do this? Mm-hmm. And there were, I, I will admit to you, there were some moments, particularly around 2019, when it looked like this thing was going to crash and burn. Mm-hmm. Because it became not just a matter of money. It became a matter of, you know, how long will I be allowed to do this? I think Buchanan himself has enjoyed this project immensely. I think he loves this kind of work. Mm. But there are other commitments that, you know, he has as a family man and as a person who will be going into a different business. uh, He had those commitments that he needed to fulfill, too. Mm. And uh, that got more and more chafing uh, mm-hmm. as the years went by uh, mm-hmm. on this project. So it is a real testament and a tribute that he stuck with it. Because I got to tell you, a lot of other people would have just told me to stuff it. Well, how about your friends and family? What did they think of this project? I'm, I'm sure it wasn't like a secret that you were working on this. No, 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 no. It's no secret at all. In fact, I'm... You know, if you look at my website, I'm one of the few collectors that really shows everything. You know, you can see my mm-hmm. whole collection there. You can mm-hmm. see the way the clock was built. And I'm very, very open about it. Mm-hmm. But really what the reaction was when I first presented the mock-up was disbelief. Mm-hmm. It was, um, well, that's a very nice mock-up. It's a nice dream but it'll never get built. Where was the disbelief coming from? Everywhere, Um, particularly from the horological community. Mm. It was like, this can't be done. It won't be done, it can't be done. And then as the years went by and it started to be built, then the criticism became, it will never work. It'll never get finished, it'll never work. It's too complicated. It's not practical. It can't be done. Mm. Now they're saying, well, it'll never really work reliably. Mm. It'll never really stand the test of time. Mm. And to that, I can't give an answer because it's only just been completed. They could be right. Maybe that it never will work right, possibly. Mm. It'll still look very cool, but... (laughs) But it's possible. When you talked about pushback from the horological community, but most of the the critiques were about its functionality. Uh, but for you, it was the functionality was something that was going to be done anyways. But it was more about you know creating a beautiful piece. Do you think that the horological community kind of grasps that imaginative fervor? I think the first half of the project it was mostly a, a technical objections. Okay. The second half, once you go through the website and you you go through the PowerPoint presentation and so on, you'll see there's no question that this is way beyond a clock. We're making a piece of art and it is a passion 
And it is something that is to enlighten your soul. Like if you have a beautiful painting hanging on your wall, you know, a Picasso or whatever it is that you happen to like, a Monet. And if you go to an art museum and you look at a beautiful, well-done painting or sculpture, it lifts your soul. Mm. And that's what I'm doing. The fact that it's a clock, if you read through my writings on this, I use the word clock and machine interchangeably. This is really about creating a piece of mechanical art. And so later on, as the project evolved, that became obvious to everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I would get asked a question like, well, how well does it keep time? My answer is I really don't care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because mm -hmm. first of all, a clock of this complexity can't keep time accurately. It, will it be good within three minutes a week? Yeah, probably. Mm. But will it be like a regulator? No, it won't. And that's not what it's meant to do. At the time I spoke with Mark, he confirmed that the astroskeleton clock is officially done. Now, looking in the rearview mirror, Mark can finally reflect on the journey. Well, what I've enjoyed about the process is really the process. Uh, mm. Again, being able to turn your computer on every morning, nearly every morning, and see something that you have, have had a hand in creating being built and being built so beautifully mm. is something I'm going to really miss. To be honest, I could have this go on forever. Mm. But that's simply not possible. Mm -hmm. uh, not only will I run out of t uh, out of money eventually, I will run out of uh, Buchanan. Is there anyone like Buchanan that you've ever met before? I believe, in my opinion, and again, you know, you can say I'm biased. I think Buchanan is the finest living clockmaker right now. Mm -hmm. There are a few others that make very fine clocks. David Walter makes very fine clocks out in California. Tommy Jobson, who has uh, also, I believe he's from Australia, makes some very fine work. But I don't think anyone comes close to the fit and finish, and no one has ever attempted anything as complex as this. Mm. I don't think anybody else could do this, nor would anybody else want to do it. <laughs> and nor would he want to do it if he knew what he was getting into. <laughs> He would never have done it. That I, I think that's fair to say, and he's he's admitted as such. And I don't blame him. You know, I took twelve years of his life away, and uh, that's that's uh, you know that's a tall order. That is, yeah. yeah. What do you anticipate feeding your creative interests after you know you get this clock in your possession? Oh gosh, you know, if I if I could find another guy like Buchanan. I have another thing in mind, you know, nothing, nothing as dramatic as this, you know, and maybe mm. a triple axis tourbillon or something like that, but uh, uh, there won't be anything else like this. This is, uh, look, I'm 60, almost 65 years old now. Mm. 
you know, I don't have 12 more years to, 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 to devote to something like this. Uh, but there are a few clocks that I'm pursuing. There are some very large and very uh, well-known collections that I can't say, but I know are going to be broken up within the next uh, few months and few years. And so I'll be I'll be there. They know me. I know them. So we'll get to that before Christie's or Sotheby's gets to it. I have a lot of projects in my basement waiting for me. I collect also uh, a bank vault timers. And so I have about 30 of them sitting down there waiting mm-hmm. for restoration. I uh, just bought out of Switzerland a few months ago a beautiful Ferdinand Bertou skeleton clock. It's about 30 inches high. It's a big one. Mm. Uh, and it needs to be completely taken apart and restored and so on and so forth. So gotcha. so the, that'll be my winter project. And uh, usually I have one major winter project. And last year I completed a uh, celestial sphere from Paris from 17, I think it was 1786. Wow. Uh, with a glass globe and held up by three atlases and has an Ori on the inside and all that. You know, yeah. That took me that took me all winter to to, <laughs> to to get working. That's great. Sounds like there's still a lot in store for you. Still a lot in store for me to do. Right. <laughs> and research. You know, every collector that I know who has, you know, a fairly large and decent collection has long ago s- said to me that the pursuit of the object is now not as much fun as the research. Mm-hmm. And and that's true. I'm, I'm doing a lot of research on different aspects of horology. I also have a book that I'll be writing about this particular project mm-hmm. and putting the entire website onto a, onto a PDF file and having that printed out. Just one last question. Yeah. When you introduce this piece to people or when you get to share about your work, what do you enjoy sharing about to people when they ask or uh, when they um, view either pictures of your work? You know, I'm not sure how to answer that question because it hasn't happened yet. Mm. Um, I mean, people, obviously they've, they've emailed me. I get many, many emails from my YouTube channel when I put uh, uh, videos out and they say, oh, my God, this is amazing. And, you know, I, I get I get a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But how will it be in real life? I don't know. To be determined. To be determined. Right. I, I, I can't imagine it will be less stunning in real life than it is <laughs> on, on the YouTube channel. Mm. You know, Buchanan tells me that uh, it leaves people speechless. So I uh, take him at his word. Right. And we can trust Buchanan. You know, I don't think there are many projects like this that could have been done without a man who was completely 100% trustworthy. Special thanks to Mark Frank, who is patiently awaiting his clock to arrive in the U.S. You know, you've been in an airplane and you've been in a rough landing. But still, while it is in transit, I probably will need at least two Xanax a night. You can learn more about Mark's work in past issues of the NAWCC bulletins by going to nawcc.org. Find more of Mark's work at his website by searching mytimemachines.net. 
This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Anna Tran. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music composed by Mark Ryan and Keith Lehman. Additional supervision by Keith Lehman. This is the NAWCC Podcast. Thanks for listening.